ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਐਮ ਆਈ ਲੈਡ ਇਨ ਕਲੀਅਰ ਯਾ ਵਾਹ ਮੈਂ ਯਾ ਯਾ ਲੈਡ ਇਨ ਕਲੀਅਰ ਆ ਥੋਟ ਦ ਕਰੋਨਾ ਵਾਇਰਸ ਔਨ ਮਾਈ ਐਂਡ ਮਾਈ ਹੈਵ ਬੀਨ ਡੂਇੰਗ ਸਮਥਿੰਗ ਟੂ ਦ ਆਡੀਓ ਬਟ ਨਾ ਦੇਟਸ ਗੁੱਡ ਯੂ ਨੋ ਇਟਸ ਆਲ ਲੈਡ ਇਨ ਕਲੀਅਰ ਵਾਹ ਆ ਗਨ ਯੂ ਹੈ ਫੋਨ ਸੋ ਓਕੇ ਦੇ ਗਾਟ ਟੈਸਟਡ Yeah, the world's turned upside down anyhow um today we are discussing you know the life of Pai Sukhasen who's who's one of the most uh, enigmatic figures in Sikh history people know that he accompanied Pai Nathab Singh to uh, slay Masarangar but over the years uh, there has been much controversy attached to his name as well everyone seems to be just uh, you know distorting his image for their own and uh, there are people who will go live on radios and say there was no need for him to go to their bar side the guru never joined us to the places others who think that he was a uh, you know good for nothing or even others who have now and this is a recent one who have actually started denying that he even existed in the first place however before we begin to answer them before we kick away the walking stick of ignorance from you know the blind man who veils it Here's a little thing uh, if you go on to YouTube the historic part of YouTube at least did you ever see the debate between Kennedy and Nixon uh I don't exactly remember it but I've seen it I think that was the first one that was televised <clears throat> I think so so now okay on one hand we have Kennedy who's a democrat and on the other we have Nixon who's a republican and they also have Eisenhower sitting behind them because Nixon was obviously Eisenhower's vice president <clears throat> and uh if you see Nixon performance wise based on performance alone Nixon triumphed over Kennedy throughout the whole debate like Kennedy never had any chance against Nixon Nixon was debating with the uh, facts with statistics like anything you threw at Nixon he would have the answer for you straight away he would say wait let me look at this let me check that paper etc etc you know he he made a very uh, profound uh mark on the people watching the television now on the other hand though you have Kennedy who uh turns around with a smile on his face and you know in this debate Kennedy didn't debate on facts or issues really what Kennedy did was he compelled people towards imagining a future where they were you know doing those actions which would you know make america great and i mean that's avoiding all the trump speech which came later but that was how <laughs> kennedy actually uh, you know entered this debate he did not debate to win over nixon but rather to convince people you know that fine then here are the facts here are the statistics here is the hard data but it's what we do with that which matters and i mean he was quite a showman he played to people's fancies and at the same time he also inspired people that they could have a better future if they put him into the office and you know what was the outcome of the debate tell me kennedy won hmm expected you can promise a lot of things to people Yep, there was actually a period down here when uh, I can't really remember who the head of the, you know, uh, Democrat party at the time was, but uh, the party president, the party board basically said that look, even though Kennedy's won the Democrat uh, nomination, we are against him running for the office of president because he's so young. And, you know, 
Kennedy had several options which he could do. Either he could try doing a Nixon versus Eisenhower, which we know happened, or what he could, you know, take this on his chin and roll with the blow, or either, you know, he could uh, do something altogether out of the box, and he did the out of the box thing. He called a television conference, put himself right at the center, told them to, you know, underline his youthfulness, and he gave this uh, speech on how, you know, the youth are the future. So why can't they have their say in the future? And the next day, the Democrats apologized to him. And uh, the rest, they say, is history. As they put it, yes. Now, the point I'm making down here through the story is this, is that people aren't concerned with the facts of life. They are concerned with how to use those facts to live a better life. You know, people always want to have a dream which they can aspire towards, to keep going towards. You know, they want to have goals. <coughs> They want to have yardsticks with which to measure how they're doing in life, in personal life, in work life, in any sort of life. And we always have goals. And I guess if you can tap into that, you can compel people to imagine themselves in a better place, whether ideologically, economically, socially, politically, militarily, pretty much all the elites. <laughs> you can actually wield great power over them. You know, the masses become your uh, army pretty much. And if you think about it, how is it that a minority com, a minority community like the Sikhs, like the Khalsa Panth, how is it that they become dominant over the Punjab? Have you ever considered that? It may be because uh, what we, let's say, okay, using your own words, what we promised, we were the only people who could deliver justice. Because, I mean, the way I see it is that, you know, when... You know, even if you look at Baba Banda Singh Bahadur and then Wab Kapoor Singh, all these leaders who came afterwards, they did not make, you know, the problems which Sikhs had at the time, the Punjab's problems. You know, they never imposed it upon other people that, you know, this is my problem, this is the Pant's problem. Rather, they took people's problems and made them their own problems. That's true. So... Obviously, the people were going to gravitate towards them. And, you know, just like Kennedy, they, you know, they pretty much were honest that the road forward is going to be very hard, very harsh. Many of us will not survive if we step onto the path. There's no guarantee we will make it to the end. But at least we will give it our best shot to have a better life. And that's what actually helped them succeed. So, you know, Rather than being a Nixon-type politician, you know, I mean, in New Zealand, we had the debate when Jacinda first won, and she just uh, sold the whole Kennedy line. You know, she pretty much copied him. That's another thing. Kennedy proved competent in the long run, and she's, uh, you know, even today being called the most incompetent prime minister in the history of New Zealand. But the thing is that if you have a vision, if you have a goal, you will do anything possible to share it with the masses and make sure the masses actually support you as well. Is this one of those things where, where you say you point the horse towards the direction of the sun and it keeps walking? <laughs> I guess so, but you also need to know how to point the horse. You know, the how is much more important than the when in this case, in this context. Mm -hmm. So, what we know of Bai Sokar Singh uh, is that, you know, his life is a blend of stoicness of pain, no pleasure, and pretty much here's a man who you uh, 
come to a point where you actually start thinking that he actually looked for meaning in pain. You know, that uh, he accepted that his life had a lot of pain, so he decided to, you know, look for meaning in pain. At the same time, though, the picture which emerges from the Sri Gurpanth Prakash and other historic sources, even though you have to remember that Panth Prakash so far has provided the, you know, most comprehensive picture of the man up to date, you see a man who does not forfeit his humanity, you know, despite what happens with him, you know, all through his life. And he only lived to around 32 years of age. So the calculation, if we are correct, because the calculation we are uh, basing his age on, what I'm basing his age on, is uh, the Sri Gurupanth Prakash of referencing Pangu. Pangu mentions that around 1733, the Sikhs had started congregating at uh, Amritsar. And Sukha Singh was actually one of those who wasn't a Sikh, but he used to go down there and serve the Sikhs at uh, Amritsar and whenever they were around in his villages. Mind you, the terminology Pangu uses sort of makes it out to be that around 1733, when Nawab Kapoor Singh became the Nawab of the Khalsa Pant, the Benoit the Singhis were expelled from their Barza, those who had betrayed Baba Banda Singh. So around this time, Sukha Singh started going around to serve the Khalsa Pant, and, you know, he was very enamored by how they promised to make the Punjab's problems their own and the vision they sold, and he decided that he wanted to be one of them. Now, he came from the village of Mari Kambo, in Amritsar, Tarkhan mm-hmm. passed, one of the lowest. And here's the surprising thing today, which uh, many people have to answer for. You know, there are many people saying that Sikhs were made for the defense of the lower castes. Yeah, fine then, but that sense of entitlement needs to be shut down. And the reality is, maybe out of a village of 100 to 200 souls, Sukha Singh was the only one to convert to Sikhi. Mm, okay, so yeah, uh, you, you you do have a point regarding the, uh, this this caste vehicle that's never ending. So speaks volumes to how brave he would have been, and uh, what happened is that his own villagers complained to Mughal informers that you know this man, this young boy, he was twelve years old at the time, Sukha Singh. We don't know what his previous name was. That he is actually a Sikh sympathizer. So the military blacklisted him and came looking for him at his house. Except, luckily enough, from the descriptions we have from you know, Ratan Singh Pangu, we need to remember that uh, Matab Singh, who was uh, Pangu's grandfather, was also a close confidant of Sukha Singh. Both of them went down into history synonymously. Anyhow, what happens is that Sukha Singh isn't home, and then the parents aren't home as well. So after they come back, they tell him, look, that you have become a Sikh. You know, you have become a Khalsa. We don't want you hanging around the house because you're married as well. So he was married, uh, according to contemporary rights, he was married when he was 12 years old. And he was uh, his wife, we understand, was also pregnant with a daughter. And this is around the 1734 to 39 period because we don't have exact dates. We really can't say this, uh, exactly when. But around those few years, so what happens is that, uh, you know, he decided to leave his house. He said, I'm not going to, you know, renounce Sikhi. I'm going to leave my house. So, you know, he leaves his house. And now and then he would come to meet his parents and his wife in the middle of the night, in the dead of the night, and he would share all these visions with them. Uh, apparently, by this time, he had become quite a prominent Pracharik. And unfortunately, what happens is that, you know, obviously the parents have a strong concern about what he's doing and what he isn't doing. So 
actually tell him that, you know, why don't you just uh, renounce everything and leave? You know, why don't you just come back to us? You know, well, why do you have to be a Sikh? And the exact term they use is a uh, Sikhi is the way of Jats. We aren't Jats. What do lower caste people like us require from, you know, Khal Saraj and all these, you know, terms and concepts you're spreading around in the Punjab? You're instigating others on the path of death. Anyhow, there is a disagreement between them, and the parents decide one night to actually drug him. And when they drug him, they shave off his hair and, you know, his uh, beard and everything, leave him pretty much in the contemporary context, what they used to say, sergam, or one without any hair or any shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And when he wakes up in the morning, obviously he's very uh, thunderstruck. He feels an atrocity has been done to him. First, he thinks about killing his entire family, but then he thinks that, you know, that's not going to serve any purpose, you know, at the end of the day. So he decides to commit suicide by jumping into a well, but the well is dry. So, you know, life couldn't get any more ironic. And what happens is that people come to him, they look at him, they see his kakars, you know, obviously the cash are gone. So they start hurling, you know, filthy uh, pejoratives at him, their own filth on top of him. And then his brother comes along and he tells him, look, just get the hell out of there. Forget that this ever happened, that you were a C, Kasing. So Kasing decides, no way. And then suddenly, as the brother comes down into the well, you know, using a rope, Sukhasen grabs him and they both start, you know, fighting with each other. And he thinks that if he kills the brother, he could, you know, sort of even out the score. And uh, Seng suddenly happens upon them, uh, armed warrior Seng. Now, a distinction we need to make down here is that back in the day, the Kali was the veteran. The Nihang was just a term as much as we use soldier today. So they weren't the Sampradayak types we have today. They were very different, you know, always wandering around and... uh always, you know, collecting intelligence on what was going to happen with the Sikhs and to protect the Sikhs. Anyway, one such thing actually happened upon the well, and he looked inside out of curiosity and saw them fighting, and he actually thought that, you know, this man who's covered in filth, who's drenched in filth, he seems to be a Sikh. And when he broke the brothers up and he uh, got them both out, he found out that this indeed was Sukhasing of Mari Kambu. And when he learned what had happened, he told him that, look, what has happened has happened. Start your life in you. You know, nothing's wrong. Go to the Panjapiare, do a pesh, get forgiven, undergo the penalty. You should have known better than to trust your family, especially if they had, you know, uh, apprehensions about you becoming a Sikh. And when Sukhasing's wife actually finds out about this, now this is quite a grey area in history, it seems that either she was forced into it, or either she did it out of her own will. They had a daughter at the time, so they strangled the daughter and killed her, just to pressure him. But Sukhasing made it back to the Dal of the Khalsa, and down there, even though they gave, uh, you know, adopted him back into the Khalsa fraternity, they actually decided not to trust him because they believed that he had a hand in killing the daughter or that he was still associating with people who killed his daughter, namely his family, because his parents and wife came to visit him. And when they learned about what had happened, you know, in a camp, you can't keep everyone's mouth shut or everyone's ears closed. So really, that's where Sukha Singh's career as a Khalsa commando, you can say, began from there. You know, that... uh 
desire to get himself reingratiated into the Khalsa Panth, you know, forgiven or reingratiated, whatever way you see it, that's where we have the Sukhasing of history emerge. Now, quite a complex question arises down here is that, you know, today there are many people who would say to a revolutionary that, you know, you know, today's times are different. Why are you going against governments? Why are you going against the state? There are better ways, you know, rather than fighting. But I guess if you look at it during Sukha Singh's times, not much has changed other than the fact that we choose more than one tyrant. At that time, you couldn't choose a tyrant, but you always had one above you. Now, the contemporary ruler of Lahore at the time was none other than Zakaria Khan. And uh, you know what the sources at the time say about Zakaria Khan and how he's viewed in the Islamic world today? You know any of that? <clears throat> I think they they see him as a, like, uh, a peer or something. Yeah, they see him as a saint for killing Sikhs. And, you know, when Zakaria died, the Hindus and the Muslims of Lahore tore out their hair mourning for him. Even the Hindus. Even the Hindus. So compare that. Now, look at the image uh, discrepancy down here. Look at the image imbalance. Obviously, there was a power imbalance, but look at the image imbalance. On one hand, you have Zakaria Khan, who's in a long list of rulers who, you know, is saying that I'll ensure life continues as it is. You have safety, you have armed patrols, you know, patrolling the roads, the streets, merchants can conduct their businesses, farmers can farm. You know, the rich will keep on getting richer and whatever will happen to the poor will happen to the poor. You know, Hindu traditions will be upheld, you know, caste namely, because it was a form of control for the Muslims as well. And, you know, Muslim clerics will be free to do whatever they want, issue whatever fatwa. On everything, he had a very uh, solid hold. And intriguingly enough, there was a individual who had converted to Sikhi, an engineer named Shubhag Singh as well. So, you know, they held this man up as a primary example that if the Sikhs supported the state, nothing would happen to them. And then they also <laughs> had close relationships with the Baba Binod Singh, Baba Khan Singh, you know, the, the Babes who betrayed Banda Singh. So they had a lot of these examples which they could hold up and say that, look, hey, they are Sikhs, we are doing nothing to them. These other Sikhs are the problem. So you see there is one faction, the pro-state Sikh faction, and then on the other hand, you have the pro-Khalsa Sikh faction, you know, Nawab Kapoor Singh, who's living in the jungles, uh, you know, Pai Mani Singh, Baba Deep Singh, and those types. You know, obviously, I know many people say that they betrayed Baba Banda Singh, but, you know, if we don't have evidence of that, then we should be careful about the allegations we make. So, you see that power imbalance I'm referring to? Yeah, but uh, I can see it very clearly, and I can ask. I actually think it at the thought of a pro-state seats, even at that time. Yeah, even at that time. So then you have the minor players or the emerging minor players like, you know, Pai Sokasang. And uh, what happens now with Pai Sokasang is that, you know, let's just discuss his life a little bit for the next few minutes and then we'll get on to the life lessons he gives us is that, you know, now... Pai Sokasang is young, he's back into the Khalsa, but, you know, he has to prove himself again. and. Now, this is very interesting. Around 1740, he became closely associated with the Jatha of uh, Sardar Sham Singh. And 
Sham Singh is one of Nawab Kapoor Singh's closest confidants. He's also one of the Dal Khalsa Jathedars. And Sham Singh actually goes over to Rajasthan. They actually leave the Punjab, they depart from there. So there was another Jassa Singh, Baba Jassa Singh, who took Sikhs from Punjab, the refugees, to Hazur Sahib in Nandir. And then, you know, Baba Sham Singh actually went from there to uh, Rajasthan. And down there, the Sikhs became, uh, became mercenaries. So, you know, not by this by exactly, but they were paid to, you know, uphold uh, the peace in the streets of Ganganagar. So, you know, they had a very... They had a very bohemian existence for a while, but they were also concerned about what was happening in the Punjab. Now, I can't remember the name of the Jathedar who was, you know, secondary to Baba Sham Singh. Anyhow, that Jathedar, his daughter was married to Matab Singh, who was from uh, Mirakot Pend, I think, down there in uh, Majai as well. Mir- uh, from Amritsar, right? Mirakot, yeah. Yeah, yeah Mirakot, yeah. Now, the difference down here between Sukha Singh and Matab Singh can't be more pronounced. Sukha Singh is a Tarkhan. He's also a carpenter. He's a farmer, a rough, ready man, black of face. You know, he's got dark skin. And the man's traumatized as well by what's been done to him. On the other hand, you have Matab Singh, born in a Sikh family. He's a refugee. He's also educated because he's working as an accountant down there in the, you know, Rajput's uh, Darbar as a, you know, sort of a ad hoc accountant. He's a private person and he's, you know, got a lot of uh, businesses coming to him. So around this time, what happens is that obviously Zakaria decides that, you know, we will rescind the Nawabi from Kapoor Singh and finish them off once they're all gathered in one place. Doesn't happen. The battle starts. And Lakhpatrai, Jaspatrai bring Masaranga to the fore and they decide that, you know, we're going to, uh, do that in the Darbar Sahib, which has never been done before. And I believe that the Mughals knew that damaging the Darbar Sahib wouldn't destroy the Sikhs. Well, that's already been proven. But one thing you need to remember down here is that even if our Gurus didn't join us with, you know, places, with any, you know, Gurdwaras, any significant, you know, uh, locations, Another thing is that if they had to, they defended Sikh locations with a great, you know, amount of force. The thing is, if I put it in a modern context, is, you know, when Hitler came to power, the first thing that happened was that he decided to ban Jewish books, burn Jewish books, defile Jewish religious books. Uh, Urination and defecating on those books became pretty commonplace in Nazi Germany. And the American jury at the time told the Jews in Europe that, you know, these are only a few books. Don't worry about them. And Hitler had a smile on his face when he actually read this correspondence because he knew that this was only one inch in the mile he was going to take from the European Jews. So you see what I'm building up towards? I'm actually thinking about the recent report that says that quite a few, like a large percentage of democracies are, are headed for a possible genocide within the next 50 years. Yep, so I'll get to that eventually. And then what happens is that Hitler decides to burn the Torah openly. And at that time, these, uh, you know, defilements, these uh, biadabis became commonplace that, you know, someone would break into a synagogue in the middle of the night or a rabbi's house, take it out, shred it and throw it away. American Jews pretty much told the European Jews that, you know, the wisdom within the Torah is our scripture and not the paper and the ink. Hitler smiled another inch gone. 
And then finally, when they actually started, you know, pushing the Jews into ghettos, the ghettoization of the Jews, the American Jews said that Hitler was selected on a democratic mandate. You guys need to learn to live in a democracy. You can't even defend yourself in a failed democracy. And then when Hitler presented his final solution, and I mean the rest they say is history, but even today the American Jews are viewed with massive suspicion in Israel. Hmm. It isn't really about the, you know, semantics of the issue or the philosophy behind the issue, but, you know, how much ground are you conceding by being tolerant? Has anybody ever won by being defensive? No, never. Okay. And I mean, there are many people among us who will tell us about democracies, etc., etc., but you need to realize that a democracy, like any other human form of government, does fail. Well, I don't think there is any form of government that has ever survived, no? Has ever proven itself to be the best form of government. We can say, compared to the past, or maybe what options we have today, democracy is the best, but it's not without its shortcoming. Democracy is basically mob rule. It's you and me voting for a third person to starve. I mean, this is going to be pretty ironic, but by many standards, Zakaria's continuity of the Sikh genocide was pretty democratic because people actually came and petitioned him to increase the whole-scale slaughter of Sikhs. Well, people actually... Yeah. Uh, there is this, uh, I read a long time ago that people would actually dress up, uh, you know, back in those days, kids used to die quite young, yeah, many diseases and something. Hmm. They would actually, uh, you know, if the kid died, they would actually dress up the kid as a Sikh and say, okay, we, we found a dead, dead Sikh kid and got the reward. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that he's got these petitions and Lakhpatra and Jaspatra tell him that rather than, you know, destroying the Darbarsa, it's not going to work. They're going to get more angry. They're going to get more fearsome. Why don't we defile it? Why don't we destroy its symbolic importance? Now, we discussed this in the Darbar episode. You know, it's not a place of pilgrimage for us, but more or less, it's symbolic and functional of our authority as an independent religious power. You know, that's, that's quite a complex reading, but we can discuss that sometime in the future. But the fact is that when that central symbol, that central motive is actually taken away from them, it's destroyed. Their future generations, if they keep up their genocide, will be compelled to believe that, you know, the Sikhi they talk about is false. The real Sikhi is what Masarangar was doing inside the Barsab. He was raping women inside there. Uh, you know, they were defiling the Guru Granth Sahib inside, openly crapping and pissing inside the Darbar side, drinking wine, drinking hookah, Kaal Takht was closed, and Masarangar also had, you know, gallons of alcohol chucked into the Sarovar. And all this was happening so openly that when news of this reached Rajasthan and Matab Singh were angry and, you know, asked to have the Sikhs died in the Punjab, and the people who were there who reported this, uh, one of their names is uh, supposed to be Bulak. I think Bulak I told him that, you know, the Khalsa has indeed died in the Punjab. Only a few are left to say Akal, Akal by the day and fight by the night. The rest are saying that this is the state. We can't fight against it. Let's just give up and stay here. 
Others are making insipid excuses that, you know, the Guru is Gyan, so what if the Gyan is destroyed? But I mean, Lakhpatra and Jaspatra had this thing that they wouldn't leave a single beard sahib of the Guru Granth Sahib in existence. And if need be, they would actually supplant it with their own version of Gurbani to fool the Sikhs. So if they, had, was, if, they, if they had composed something or, or written something, in it, by to its tenders, that would be considered rotten. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a reality. The other people aren't actually seeing what history really entails. They're rather just going off that Babaji says that this historic grant is correct. But anyhow, getting back to the story, those Sikhs were pretty far-sighted when they realized what they were up to. I mean, you know, no one was going to come and risk their life for a building if it had no significance to Sikhi. However, because there was a significance down there, a symbolic significance, they decided they would fight it out. I mean, during the Civil War, you know, even Lincoln expended considerable effort in getting an army ready to defend Washington when uh, Lee very nearly came over. Remember that incident? I do remember, and also remember that in, in Second World War, Hitler focused on Stalingrad because it was Stalingrad. Yeah, but that's the thing. I mean, you know, symbolically speaking, such edifices, such locations, they have a very practical purpose as well, which, you know, our idiots are ignoring today. But the practical purpose in the Darbar Sahib, you know, this is provided by Radhan Singh Punk, who again, and I'm not saying that he's 100% correct, but there are many things where, you know, he is correct, where he is authentic. The, the Harmandar Sahib, you know, acted as the constitutional house of the Khalsa, the Kal acted as its parliament. And if those symbols of authority were destroyed and the Sikhs did nothing about it, then what would be their claim to sovereignty? No. You know, so they decided that if Massa was so openly, so conspicuously defiling the Darbar side, they would have to kill him pretty openly, pretty conspicuously as well. If he was symbolically discrediting Sikhi, they had to symbolically punish him as well. And so we know that Sukha Singh, Matab Singh, Matab Singh's wife and their young son Rai Singh came disguised as merchants to Amritsar, where they basically beheaded Masa, took his head back to, you know, Buddha Jordan, Rajasthan. And today our radio hosts are saying that, you know, there might not have been any personality such as Matab Singh and Sukha Singh. They're rewriting the history because who knows what their, you know, main aim is. I think they went back to the Bikaner area. Yeah, around their Buddha Jor. And uh, <laughs> funnily enough, I recently got told that, you know that painting by Param Singh of uh, Pai Sukha Singh killing the Gilzai Patan outside Lahore, the one where he's on top with the katar in his hand and he's got the other guy pinned down? Mm-hmm. I've seen that. that yeah, that picture is too violent and uh, British people might misconstrue what it means. Yeah, we need to put a trigger warning plaque in front of the Gurdwara's hood, you know? These people on there are violent pictures inside. I don't think the British people are that stupid, though. Well, they did worse things than this. <laughs> I mean, when these people who argue about these pictures, about banning such pictures, about denying such history, when they argue freedom of speech, I don't see any difference between them and the side they're claiming to fight because both of them will be the same for the normal seat. Hmm. It's the a person person trying to convince you to give up and the person fighting to defeat you are the same. 
Pretty much, pretty much. So, you know, this is what happened in 1740. Masarangar was low. And now, 1746, the Chota Ka happens. And during this time, Sukha Singh has made more forays into the Darbar side. He has assassinated several other prominent Mughal commanders. And when the Chota Ka happens again, he's uh, in charge of the cavalry with 2,000, 3,000 horsemen. Wab Kapoor Singh has entrusted him to lead the Sikhs to safety. He actually runs to the center of the battlefield to try slaying, you know, uh, the... <clears throat> commanders of the Kalukara, the Mughal commanders at least, and what happens is that a cannonball hits his leg and his leg is broken. So the pain is intense, he keeps on going, but ultimately they say that uh, he just fainted. You know, after several hours of fighting with a broken knee, he actually fainted. And then what happened is that he finally came to and they were leading him away from the field of battle, and, you know, obviously we know that as they came out from there, the Bahari Rajas came onto them, the Hill communities also came against them, low castes, high castes, everyone. And Sukha Singh finally led his cavalry in a deadly charge battling Helter Skelter to clear the way for the Sikhs, for the surviving Sikhs to get into Majja. The hill yeah, chiefs come crashing on us. What a surprise. The hill chiefs, the high castes, the low castes, everyone joined into this bloody melee against the Sikhs. You've got to remember if people are saying that most of these people were slaves. If a slave does not want to let go of slavery, how many times are you going to keep on, you know, influence that slave? How many times are you going to go to that slave and try emphasizing to them to, you know, become free if they want to remain slaves forever? No, it's, it's one of those things that when, when they freed the slaves in America, the, the slaves actually came back to the plantations because they didn't know what to do. Hmm. You know, fuck, Kabir says this, Kabir Sacha Satwar Kya Well, you know, really, at the end of the day, what can the truth do if the followers of the truth themselves are, you know, defective? Man, truth is scary. Fact is scary. Yeah. I mean, look at it this way. You know, there have been incidents in history where slaves have said, oh, look, we just get whipped by our master and they might take your life arbitrarily, but, you know, that's better than, you know, roaming around in the wilderness. There have been such types of people as well. There is the, it's a strong argument that I, I get food, I get shelter, I get everything. What if I can be beaten up twice a day or something? That's the cost they're willing book. to pay. Yep. Have you read the book 12 Years a Slave or seen the movie? Uh, no, uh, I, I haven't. Yeah. Some, book, of the, the movie. some of the slaves, because it's based on a real story, some of the slaves, the protagonist actually interacts with the narrator because he was kidnapped and uh, made a slave for 12 years before he actually managed to escape. W what they actually show is that the slaves in no way are, you know, confident enough to escape. They don't want to escape. You know, they're happy, not happy, but they're satisfied with life as it is. You know, they don't want to make an effort to start afresh. You know, if you want to break free from slavery, it also entails the exception of the fact, you know, the, uh, you know, you accept the fact that you have to start from scratch again by yourself. You make that effort. Well, okay. I'll give you a better example. Yep. There are people who are stuck in a jobs they hate because they are too afraid to start from zero again. Mm -hmm. And that mentality has been around since the dawn of humanity. You know, people are stuck in one location because they're not, you know, brave enough to venture outside it. And if you look at Boy Sukhas, and he actually represents this, you know, sort of a symbolic quandary down here. I mean, out of a village of 100 to 200 souls, you know, a village which is oppressed here to its past, he's the only one who becomes a Sikh. 
and especially if they're in Maja, they must have known about the existence of Sikhi for the past 200 or more years. Yep. And all those other slaves, you know, he breaks free from slavery, but the other slaves turn against him. Then, you know, we have all these other incidents. I mean, during the Chotaka Lokara, he had to confront thousands of low castes, thousands of them ganging up on the Sikhs. Yeah. And you've got to ask yourself that, you know, in hindsight, with the history we have established today, what other aspects of that history are we ignoring? This question is very hard to answer because we don't, we don't even know what exact amount of history has been discarded because it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit the narrative. Hmm. And, you know, after some time, Pai Sukhasing actually had to leave his family. You know, he was pro uh, probably disowned by them. Yeah, he was disowned by them. He had to leave them because really his own entire family and his villagers turned against him. They actually wanted to have him killed and claimed the reward for, you know, getting a Sikh arrested and executed by the authorities. That's, that's the brutal reality. I think the same shit happened in the 80s as well. Mm-hmm. It's happened all the time. It's happened all the time. I mean, you know, okay, look, we are born into Sikh families, and, you know, there are others born into Sikh families, and these others have a lot of, uh, you know, culturalism and traditionalism, which doesn't belong in Sikhi, but if they speak out against it, they will most likely be disowned. Not just disowned. Disowned is therapeutic openly discarded. Mm, just like rubbish. Yeah, discarded. So I guess that's why people don't like, you know, we have made Pai Sukhasin into a figure of violence only, but this was a man who was actually more than just a violent person. You know, violence is necessary in life. You have to impose change through force, through violence. And he used controlled aggression and controlled violence. But reality being, Sokasin was the man who knew, you know, he knew, he was aware, he was familiar with the fact that, you know, if the governments of the day are against me, I have to fight against them. And that's, that's what he exactly did, you know, he actually warred against them, you know, for, you know, what right does anybody have to, you know, destroy the Deir Sahib, you know, Lakapatra, Jaspatra, this was against them, what right does anyone have to come into their bar side and, you know, discredit and from there, you know, as Banda Singh said, that if we concede a few inches, they will come and kill us into houses and chase us for miles. And Banda Singh ultimately proved right. But, uh, you know, the most biggest imbecility which I'm seeing, the imbecility down here is that our Sikh historians are only narrating history, but they never pick at the most profound aspects of that history. There's a reason you never see a single picture of Baba Nanak engaged in farming in any Gurdwara across the world. Yep. I mean, I'm reading a book at the moment, The Warrior and the Prophet by, uh, you know, Peter Cousins. It's about uh, Tekum, say, you know, the shiny Indian leader who actually stood up against uh, uh, against the Americans after the Revolutionary War. Anyhow, you know, he's done such a remarkable job in exploring why Tekum, say, you know, refused to uh, negotiate with the Americans He's provided, you know, very salient reasons, very, you know, logical reasons about it. But down here, if you look at it, our history isn't like that. I mean, Dr. Gandasing said that, you know, at that time, people wanted history to be a narrative. Today, we want history to be a lesson. But unfortunately, we never get those lessons. And I mean, it's come to a point that, you know, 
the lessons from the life of Qayyim Singh and Sukha Singh are going to be very, uh, how would you class them? They would be very negative for some of the powers that be. Well, of course they're going to be. And around 1748, we see another side of play, Sukhasing, which is that, you know, he wasn't a man solely concerned with killing people on the field of battle. He was also concerned about what happened after the violence was over. You know, violence and force, the revolution, the physical aspect is only one part of the solution. The other part is, you know, implementing a future which avoids the past. Now, have you read uh, Johannes Most's philosophy of the bomb? Uh, Mueller, you mean? No, no, Most, Most, not Mueller, Most. No. Okay. Anyway, he studied history for some time and he picked out uh, six salient points as to why, you know, violence is used by revolutionaries. And I guess this uh, confirms quite uh, clearly in my mind to the character of Christ, okay, so, so, okay, so there is a revolution going on, so, you know, Masaranga did something outrageous and, you know, the Khalsa duo Sukhasing and Makab Singh did something even more outrageous to avenge it. So here's the first point. Outrageous violence will seize the public imagination. Hmm. True. And this is actually explained quite uh, clearly by Prince Peter Kropotkin. Actions which compel general attention led the new idea to seep into people's minds. A single act could in a few days make more propaganda than thousands of pamphlets and above all. It awakens the spirit of revolt. It breeds daring. Soon it becomes apparent that the established order does not have the strength often supposed. The people observe that the monster, which is, you know, obviously the revolutionary, is not so terrible as they thought. Hmm. You know, so that was the points which are most provided. So, you know, outrageous violence. And then number two, its audience can be thus awakened to political issues. So, you know, Obviously, when Masarangar is beheaded down there in the Darbar side, you know, most of Punjab would have been asking, what makes Sikhs so persistent? What are they really fighting for? Why was the Darbar Sahib and the Guru Granth Sahib desecrated in the first place? And then we come to number three. Violence is a cleansing force in certain contexts. What do you agree with that? <clears throat> well, it, it is actually true, yes. Because the old system has to be uprooted. You can't dismiss force and violence. You just can't put it out of the equation and say that you can't defend yourself even in a failed, you know, democracy. And then you ask, where does, you know, Biadabi come from? Where does that come from? Where does that come from? You know, you argue semantics to sort of change the context, the, you know, field of play. But the reality is that essentially violence is a natural part of human evolution and it is a historic necessity, and it will be a future necessity. Well, given the amount of money that, that's being spent on quote-unquote defense, it should be clear. I mean, usually the people, look, I'm, personally speaking, I didn't call myself a violent man. You have known me for, you know, nearly a decade now. What do you say I'm a violent man? Well, you don't have, you know, nice soft words for this in there, so there are also some, some elements there. <laughs> no, but overall, leaving the politics aside, leaving my political views aside, 
I guarantee if he came to, if he came to your street, you would throw a pie in her face. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that to her. I mean, I know. I wouldn't waste a pie. I wouldn't waste anything. Uh, hey, Bill, then. No, no, nothing at all. I, I would just, you know, walk away from it because I'll make my disappointment conspicuous. I'll make her, I'll make it knowing that I'm disappointed with her, but I'll not get down to violence, you know. I, I follow the Udom song. Probably, probably, uh, uh, probably make a poster. <laughs> I follow the Udom thing next time, you know, that when you need to, when you fight then, otherwise there's more than one way to, uh, you know, disengage with a foe and, you know, comp- uh, defeat the foe. There's more than one way. Yeah. And anyhow, That's this true. doesn't mean that violence is not a necessity in certain contexts. In certain contexts, yes, okay. Okay. So then we come down to this, is that systematic violence can threaten the state and impel it into delegitimizing reactions now. This is the most important distinction we need to make down here. So after 9-11, what happened is that, you know, when the Americans sat down and looked at history, this is something which has emerged. It's not, you know, solely uh, something which is, you know, related to democracies, but all forms of, you know, ruling. War is supposed to be coercive. Terrorism is supposed to be persuasive. The freedoms which governments, any governments, any form of governments, you know, democracy, dictatorship, the freedoms which they say they want to defend against violence against the state, those very same freedoms are curbed when an act of revolution or terrorism is successfully directed against that state. If Washington had lost, he'd be remembered as a terrorist, wouldn't he? Yep. Uh, if I remember correctly, Muhammad Farid, who actually, you know, witnessed Banda Singh's ascent and uh, final betrayal in the Punjab. Now, Kushwant Singh very sardonically and very uh, cleverly, mischievously, actually, only remarked that, you know, Muhammad Farid says that Hindus were forced to shave their beards during the, you know, uh, persecution of the Khalsa by Badusha. Muhammad Farid, I have the account at home, if that's the uh, narrator, if I can remember correctly, he actually mentions that Muslims as well were forced to cut their beards. Now, mm-hmm. one might argue that these were the light castes, you know, these were the pro-state actors, why were they forced to curb their own freedoms of apparel for defeating Sikhs over against the state? you see the contradiction here? I do. Yeah. So if I, if someone walks into, say, a bar and kills people with a semi-automatic, the next day, what's the political reaction? The government's going to take all its citizens' semi-automatics away. That's essentially one freedom gone right there. But the act- No, you, you will have to rename them. You have to say military-style semi-autos. Well, whatever the word play, at the end of the day, you're pretty much destroying the freedom yourself. So that's why they say terrorism is persuasive. Now, I'm not saying that uh, terrorism, I'm not saying it in the negative light we have today, but really as a act of violence, you know, without uh, justifying why or negating why the violence happens. Anyhow, that's uh, most uh, fourth point. Systematic violence can threaten the state and impel it into delegitimizing reactions, which happened with Zakaria Khan, the Mughals, the Afghans, the British, you know, all over Sikh history. Number five, 
Violence will destabilize social order and threaten social breakdown. Now, I think that's the most important point. Yep. Now, you know, a Tarkhan like Bais, Sukha Singh, who takes Amrit, who has no value, whose life has no value, who takes Khandebhakti Amrit, becomes a Khalsa, becomes, you know, Shastatari, he is made a leader, a military, a political, and a social leader as well. You know, he's made a leader as well. And the social order is already breaking down. Caste is breaking down around the Hindus. You know, Sharia is breaking down around the Muslims. Those forms of control are breaking down as the Sikhs, you know, uh, uh, not imposed, but as they increase their sovereignty day by day over the Punjab. And the next natural step, this is the last step out of the six, is ultimately the people will reject the government and turn to the anti-government and make it the new government. When the situation is mostly anarchy, let's say, very unstable, the institution Mm -hmm. which offers the best options or has the best idea will naturally win. Yep. I mean, you heard Dr. Balvan Singh Tillo's, uh, you know, episode with us on Baba Bandazan? I did. You know, he says a part that, you know, you have to trace historic sources to their roots. So it turns out Gany Gansing actually, you know, uh, corroborates a historic source in the Navin Panth Prakash where he says that the people came to the Sikhs and told them that, look, by night you come out to defend us. Why don't you start ruling over us? That's most step number six right in action right there. Mm-hmm. Right? So by Sukhasin was especially a hero of all these. Violence for him was a strategy and not a way of life as our idiots are making it out to be today. You know, the man wasn't violent. And as it turns out, is that in 1748, Ahmad Shah Dali visits the subcontinent for the first time or invades the subcontinent with, you know, visit being a euphemism, passes through Lahore and leaves a strong guard down there called the Gilze. Pangu calls them Gilze, which means vultures. And these Patans... Uh, Gilze is, uh, is a tribe of uh, Patans, Afghans. Oh, yeah, okay, because uh, Pangu's uh, statement says that he calls them vultures, but that might be his own uh, doing. Anyhow, It's these the same Gilze- thing. You have the Gilzai, you have the Yusufzai, you have the Barakzai, so it's like a tribe. All the Zai family. <laughs> yeah. So now what Pongu says is that, you know, this entire sovereignty aspect is flipped over. These Patans, the Gilzais, are told about the Sikhs, that, you know, they ask why are the gates shut tightly at night, why are lamps extinguished? Why does livestock go missing? Why do people, uh, you know, wake up in the morning and find that their neighbors who informed on these so-called sinks and courts are, you know, beheaded in the middle of the night or found dead? And they tell them about the Sikhs, how they live in the jungles, and <coughs> the Gilzais decide they want to fight the Sikhs. So uh, I think the village is called Buddha Court near Shapur, which is an area around there, and they hunt down all these Sikh villages and massacre them. And surviving Sikh detachments, what happens as they decide to make a last stand, Charat Singh, Sukar Chakya, suddenly appears with a you know contingent of Khalsa forces, and they assist them in retreating across the river. Now, the problem they have 
is that they do not have any strong forces to aid them if those Gilzays start coming after them. And the Gilzays are heavily armored as well. They're sitting down for a midday meal and they're shouting insults at the gurus. And they're, you know, there are allegations that they, you know, defiled a beater right in front of the Sikhs. The Sikhs couldn't do much. And then suddenly Charat Singh gets on a little war pony and he decides if no one else, then I'm going to go down there. I'm going to fight single-handedly against their champion. And if I die in the process, so be it. If not, then I'm going to shut them down forever. And suddenly, as he's about to go there, guess who comes to the spot? Sukhasan. Sukhasan comes to the spot. And he's like, okay, kid, what's up? What the hell do you think you're doing? And uh, Jad Singh tells him that, look, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to shut them in. And Sukhasan turns to him and says, look, you're just a little child. You don't have so much practical experience. Why are you wasting your life? And Jarad Singh tells him, well, if they come after us, we are dead. And if they stand there and, you know, do the other be of their identity, we're equally dead. So Kersing tells him that, you know what, boy, you stand behind. <clears throat> now, the fact is that just a few months before, Sukhasing had actually raided a fortress, a Karma who had betrayed a lot of Khalsa Sikhs. Sukhasing had single-handedly managed to, you know, raid the fortress and kill him in the field of battle. So Sukhasing decides that, you know, the armed Gilza, he's got a lot of armor on him, but it's going to be like breaking the fort. Anyhow, he rides across and the Gilza are laughing because, you know, Sukhasing's body was very lean and wiry. He wasn't as muscular as the Gilza, you know. <clears throat> so, I mean, the Gilza could probably bench press more than Sukhasin, putting it in today's words, which people will understand. Anyhow, they had this massive clash. Starts from dawn until mid-afternoon when both of them fall down exhausted. Their wounds are gaping. They're bleeding from the forehead, from near their eyes. The Gilze is also heavily exhausted because, you know, he's got the metal armor while Sukhasing is lightly armored, but he's bleeding very profusely. Suddenly what happens is that, you know, Sukhasing gets up, makes that one last effort, they have one last clash, he manages to get on top of the Gilze, grip open an armor plate and stab his uh, guitar in there. And as he does this, he twists it at the same time and rips out the man's stomach and all his guts straight away down there. And all you, the, you, yep. you forgot to give me a trigger warning. <laughs> well, if they get triggered by this, then yeah, they're more than free to come to us on Twitter and tell us what they think is triggering about this. Anyhow, I know there will be a lot of trigger, uh, there a lot of triggering going on around this, so I will put up a trigger warning <laughs> when we post this up. Anyhow, after he kills the Gilze. All the Sikhs rush him to their camp, and down there they decide to actually forgive him, you know, actually officially forgive him for accusing him of killing his daughter of suicide. And Sham Singh makes him his adopted son and gives him two horses and new weapons and a new bana. Hmm. And I guess for a man like Sukha Singh, you know, for Sukha Singh, it wasn't that he, well, yes, it was primarily that he was forgiven, but the biggest thing was that, you know, what he told Sham Singh was that even if you had announced me as your adopted son without giving me these gifts, I would have been more than happy. So lots of humility in the man. And from there on, he became Charat Singh's mentor and Charat Singh's primary advisor. 
And you have to wonder whether it wasn't Sukha Singh who finally convinced Charat Singh that the Sikhs needed a strong government to rule over the Punjab. That, you know, out of all the missile sardars, Charat Singh seems to be the most politically astute uh, based on the information we have about him. You need to wonder how much of that was due to Sukha Singh's doing. Uh, how many lessons he would have given Charat Singh indirectly through his, through his behavior, through his demeanor and everything? Yep, because, you know, Sukha Singh had a personal stake in the matter. He was one of the oppressed castes. He, he had seen tyranny up close, up front. He had seen familial tyranny. He had seen societal tyranny. He had seen all forms of tyranny in his life. So he always felt he had a personal stake in the matter to, you know, establish Khalsa Raj and the Punjabi people had a fighting chance in their life. This was the vision which empowered him. So like I said, he wasn't solely a man of violence as we stereotype him, but when it came to violence, there was none other like him. But it was controlled violence, controlled aggression. Ultimately, his end came pretty soon. 1753, the Sikhs set out to assist Koramal, who they heard was going to be assassinated in the field of battle. Around that time, they had 30,000, you know, Khalsa warriors. And it seems that, uh, according to Pangu, although we have to look at the historic significance of this, is that around the time Nawab Kapoor Singh died, Kushal Singh Ramgarya and Hari Singh Pangu had a bit of a tiff between them. Their forces started infighting. Sukha Singh, you know, decided to carry on forward. He made a very bold move. Ultimately, he was ambushed by the Afghans. And finally seeing that, you know, if he started retreating, everyone else, you know, would be killed alongside him. He stood his ground with a detachment of a few others in the middle of the night. Next morning, when some Sikhs returned after the massive body had, you know, retreated the rest of their counterparts, they actually saw that he was, you know, lying dead on the field of battle. So, in a way, it was a catastrophic, a tragic end to a life which otherwise might have given even more value to the punk. A very tragic end indeed. But I think he went out the way he wanted to. Fought, fight. I guess so as well. I guess so because, I mean, the impression you get of the man was that he wasn't scared of anything much. I mean, you know, he like if you said to Sukha Singh something might happen to you, he, you know, that's what Chad Singh probably said to him, that, look, what if something happens to you? And he turned around and told him that, look, Ted, Parents left me, wife left me, killed my kid. You know, what more can you throw at me? What more can that throw at me? Yeah, obviously, he would have said to Chad Singh that, you know, I apologize for getting in your way, but kid, go back, let me deal with these guys down here like I want to. And, you know, Sukhasin is the ideal man which all men should, you know, uh, try emulating their life. He's the standard bearer of what men should be. Now, of course, this is a very controversial statement, but at the end of the day, in a democracy, the chance of governmental failure is higher than it has ever been before. Hmm. Right? And while the law works for you, while you're treated fairly, all good, but if all modes of redress fail, Obviously, you will resort to force. You know, if we are saying that the injunctions of Gurbani are timeless, why do we ignore Baba Nanak Shabda Murakaganda Kavay Mumar? Isn't that 
forever? Isn't that an immortal message? I was thinking more along the lines that the Irish tried for so long to get independence and the independence came through a civil war. Yep. If you think about it, also look at it from this way. We say that the Gurus establish precedents, yardsticks, and markers for us on how to live in the future. Right? Yep. Now, there are two authentic documents credited to Guru Gobind Singh, the Fatehnama and the Zafarnama. You know, they're... The only thing against the Zafar number is that we don't have a primary copy, but we have copies made by scribes during the Guru's term. So we can accept that this document is authentic anyway. The Guru would have written it like that. So when Guru Gobind Singh says in the Zafar number that, you know, when all modes of redress have, uh, you know, failed, when all levels of tolerance are breached, it is righteous to resort to the sword. Why then do we turn around and say that's fake history without any evidence of it being fake history? Well, if people are not able to follow the path, they will say it's, it's, it's not the true path. No, saw grapes, put it in simple words. So if you I know, can't do it, that's not the right thing to do. You know, if you look at the life of Pai, because, you know, I mean, okay, let's face it, the man got a shit deal. You know, many Sikhs actually thought he uh, killed his daughter. Many would have probably taunted him during his dying days, you know, until his dying days. But really, the man stuck to his mission, that single-mindedness, devotion to Sikhi, that is lacking among today's Sikhs. I mean, in times of peace, he was a man of peace. In times of war, he was a man of war. What more can you want from anyone? You know, think about it. Consider that character, that, you know, ethicality, that morality which we are dismissing today because he went and beheaded Masaranda. If someone says, you know, that there are many people who say, you know, fact is that, you know, those guys understood the value of Sikh heritage more than we do today. Hitler started with a yellow star. Went to the rabbi's beard, and nine million Jews dead later. What do you think would have happened if the Jews had started offering resistance from day one? So maybe this number would have been, let's say, a lot smaller. A lot smaller. Maybe history would have been different. But end of the day, you know, people just don't have the imagination to think outside the box. You know, their own fears and sense them in this. Uh, sense of comfort which they hate to go out of. You know, there is something interesting that Jordan Peterson says, it's not the end result where happiness is to be found, it's ultimately the journey towards that end result where happiness is to be found. It is in surmounting obstacles towards the final goal where happiness is to be found. <clears throat> yeah. I heard him, yeah. So that, I would agree with this statement. So the spirit of optimism, the spirit of charity, that's what the history of Paisukas and gives us. That's what his life actually gives us, and that's what we should be implementing in our own lives. Now, <laughs> if someone asks us the question that do you spot violence, what would you say? I would say define violence. Because what you understand by violence and what I understand by violence could be pulled apart. 
Okay, so let's rephrase that question. I mean, let's just imagine Pai Sukha Singh is sitting here, he's listening to us as well. I mean, just imagine for the sake of it. And if someone asks, how do you see violence? What would you say then? Violence is a means to defend myself and it's a means to ensure my survival and my rights. The, the survival of my and the protection of my rights and everything. It's similar in a political context as well, I guess, in a socio-political context, in a religio-political context. You know, we have to understand that Guru Gobind Singh was very far-sighted. You know, Maharaj was very far-sighted. Baba Nanak was very far-sighted when they gave us those two shabbats, Murakadandapave Mumar, and that when enough is enough, it is right he has to resort to the force. Well, what options are you left with? Are you going to say, okay, this is, this is my tribe, there are 100 people, <clears throat> if 10 are killed, okay, that's not a big issue. 20 are killed, okay, it's worrying now, let's try to negotiate. 40 are killed, and ultimately there's no one left to fight back. I uh, had a friend in high school, and uh, what happened was that he's from Germany. His name's Finn. We catch up now and then on social media. And one day, uh, I took my copy of the Sri Gurpanth Prakash to school. And Finn is an anthropologist. He's interested in languages, so he had that interest in school. And uh, he was sitting there reading the English translation. And uh, coincidentally enough, like we are talking about by Sukha Singh, by Mataf Singh, he came to that part. And he told me that, you know, the Nazis won 42.9% of the weight, I think, when they first came to power. I think there were two or three elections in 1933. They, the first time they came to power, they made no secret of the fact what their intention was, that, you know, their intention was to purify, which meant an ethnic cleansing of non-German elements. And even then, a majority of German people, 17 million, the greatest white share, solely voted for the Nazis alone. If I remember correctly, they had a massive uptake. They actually acquired 79 or 94 seats out of 641 back then. So those are 94 uh, additional seats on top of what they had. So they had a majority of more than 200, I believe, in you know, the German parliament at the time. And uh, interestingly enough, they were voted in during a democracy, and Finn was telling me that his grandfather was actually a policeman at the time, and they drafted him to be a soldier eventually, because, you know, Hitler already had that intent to wage war. And, you know, his grandfather got a shock when uh, one night he was standing on a balcony at his house, Mm -hmm. And what had happened was that first they had imposed the Yellow Stars, they had transferred the Jews, they had actually gone after, you know, uh, dissenters, writers, poets, and then some of the, you know, more hot-headed youth. They had picked up all those people, and uh, his grandfather was uh, standing there with his wife, and he was telling her, his grandmother, that, you know, nothing is ever going to happen. This is a democracy. Adolf Hitler is a good chancellor. He's just trying to, you know, make society better for everyone. And across the street, they had a family, and uh, this family had a patriarch who was on a wheelchair. And uh, this family wasn't Jewish. They had pro-German sympathies. They were one of the few non-Jewish bankers in Germany at the time. 
police car, a Gestapo car draws up. The policemen get out, you know, offer their salute, knock on the door, uh, go into the family quarters. And, you know, this was a common occurrence every day, like 10 or 15 of them also used to visit the family once in a while. You know, the commissioner used to be on personal terms with them. This time, 20 of them file in, push the family outside, and they grab this patriarch on the second story of the house, drag him up to the roof, and throw him down from the roof. Hmm. Because the furrow had taken his democratic uh, ideals a bit further for what passed for them, and he decided that handicapped people had no place in German society. Hmm. Yeah, I remember this one. There were more examples. Yep, and it was around this time that that poem was written that, you know, something along the lines of when they came for for my neighbors, I did nothing, like until everyone was wiped out, until they came for me, then no one else was left to do anything about it. There are parallels to today in history which we have to pick up as well. You know, we need to be prepare for the best but expect the worst. That's the rule I follow in my life. That's what I've learned from history, personally speaking. Hmm. So, ultimately, when someone comes and tells me that, you know, Paisukasin was too violent, what the, you know, white people think about his picture, I usually tell them that white people are more intelligent than we are. They're probably going to ask the history behind it. <laughs> okay. That's a, that's like the um, mic drop statement. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, okay, so think about it. Jesus and the church, you see a picture of Jesus slaying the devil. I mean, someone can go and say that that's animal cruelty because, you know, the devil's always showing as a serpent. But I mean, really, at the end of the day, you got to give credit, people credit where credit is due. I mean, if you're really that scared, then someone will turn around and ask me, you know, this is what I usually say, that, you know, if you don't have the money, it's okay, I'll do a little fundraising event, get the few others like you as well, and we will have this massive shaving fest where you might as well say that, look, if our historic pictures are offending you, our history is offending you, well, then our faces, our turbans, they must offend you as well. You know that people mistake us for Bin Laden here, we'll shave everything off and change our appearance. But, you know, they're not yeah. ready to do that. Yeah, and we'll also bleach our skin as well. Yep. The funny thing, you know what the funny thing I find is? That uh, they will say the gurus work nothing besides Gurbani themselves. And I ask them, so why do you keep your, uh, you know, hair, you know? Why do you have the hair on your face and the start on your head? Oh, well, uh, yeah, I never get a very uh, comprehensive answer from them. They just tailgate it out of there. Suddenly got they got a job to do. Oh, I forgot something. I gotta leave. Yeah, I forgot my brain. I gotta go find my brain. Right. So, what are your takeaways from this episode? The takeaways are the following. Point number one: Sukhasing is not exactly what he was portrayed as. There was just one incident in his in his life, and his entire portrayal was based off of that at that incident. Yep. He was Agreed. an able commander, a tactician. Or we, we could also say he was a, like special forces of that time. 
Oh, pretty much. He, he had that military bent. I mean, yeah, most of his time was spent fighting, but then at the other opposing end of the spectrum, he was also quite a humanist. That's what I believe. Yep, and a preacher as well. So he had a massive, uh, he had a very massive, uh, you know, effect on Sikhs at the time. You know, people still immortalize him, still remember him as being, you know, quite a valiant individual, you know, one who stood up for, you know, innocent people's rights. And I guess these are the aspects of Christ, the person which we ignore today quite other, uh, you know, elements about him, which we, I guess, find conducive, because violence really is the primordial tool which also makes us tremble, while it also empowers us in a way. You know, belligerence, would you agree with that? I'll also take an example from nature. Hmm. I mean, you, you can't really go against nature, yeah? No, you can't go against nature. And the state of nature is constant warfare. <laughs> it is constantly altering through force. Yep, every day a lion kills a deer or, well, maybe a zebra or something. And every single day the fight, the zebra fights to, let's say, you know, stay vigilant, stay vigilant and run faster than the predator. I, I, are you going to complain that there's, there's 10,000 of, of, of zebras and only 100 of lions, so we are a democracy and we can outvote you that you can't hunt us anymore? <laughs> oh, God. You know, there's a fable that once the uh, sheep actually uh, got a dog to protect them from the eagles, their lambs, and the eagles had a massive meeting and they called all the sheep together and they said, look, brothers, there are more of you than us. And these dogs are really not your friends as well. Look at how they snap at you. So why don't you wait to kick the dogs out? And the sheep decided, yep, that's exactly what we'll do. And the next day, the eagles massacred the whole lot. That's the stupidity which our people are jumping into. Rank stupidity. Hmm. And uh, one thing you've got to understand is that, you know, people say that Vaheguru is in Kudrat. Okay, accepted. So, then they say that Vaheguru is Nirpal, Nirpal. You know, try making Vaheguru out to be a woke hippie type. But you've got to understand Nirpal without fear, Nirvair, without enmity. Wouldn't Vaheguru be the greatest judge then? And then if Vaheguru is the greatest judge, we accept it, and we have to live life, you know, by emulating Vaheguru's virtues, then that doesn't necessarily mean that being near Bhav near there means that you're a Vaheguru hippie who allows kissing and gurdwaras. Please stop oppressing me with your facts and logics. <laughs> yeah, I have to take the Kennedy line, eh? It's okay, God loves everyone, smoke weed, be woke. <laughs> you know, today there was an interesting uh, sort of a conversation on Discord, an interesting uh, exchange. They were being clowns, but they're like, oh, you got to cancel Amarjeet. And then someone's like, no, 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 don't get him started. Don't get him started on cancel culture. Well, uh, that's the age-old question. If you, if you reject everything that offends you, how, you're not going to progress. So you're not going to progress. And I mean, I guess... You see it from Pai Sukhasing's view as well. He didn't reject, you know, many things. He accepted them as they were. If his life was so painful, he decided, yeah, so what? I have to progress. And we remember him for that, you know, today. 
But his life is also one which raises very big question marks on Sikh history. If someone says that Sikhs were made to defend the low castes, why was it that in a village of 100 to 200 in Marikambo, only one 12-year-old boy decided to convert to Sikhi? Because they knew that the Sikhs are there to, you know, defend us. So we don't need to become Sikhs at them ourselves. That, there's your answer. I think this is what they call anti-caste history, is it? Man, <laughs> don't even get me started, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, that's that's something which I am, I put up this. Yep. I am a jati. Eh? Yep. So I have oppressed everybody, including myself. Mm-hmm. I am. I profess every kind of oppressive ideology you can associate with me. Yep. I am a casteist. I am a racist. I am a um, maybe even an ableist or something. And I, I and also I am privileged. Because uh, I have land. I see. And also, also, many of the social problems we have today are directly associated with the actions of my, uh, me and my forefathers. You have to imagine what Pai Sukhasing would do if he actually came back today and saw all this bullshit, all this crap going on in the streets of the world. I mean, he would be left shaking his head perplexed. He It's actually one of those one of those things when the those uh, Antifa people they, they say that the uh, soldiers of the of the World War for the original Antifa and they, if those soldiers came back today <clears throat> and there are some survivors quite a few of them would they agree with them probably not would they say that I, I went as an eighteen year old I landed on the Normandy beach on June four nineteen forty four just so that some people could burn my city down. Or you could, you know, erase the borders and import millions and demographically replace me and my grandchildren. Would you agree with that? No. If you, if you, if you show those people who are on the way to, let's say, Europe to fight, to liberate Europe, that this is going to happen in the future because of, the, of what you are going to do in the next few days, they will probably turn back their boats. Or worse, they could join the Axis. Hmm. We need to keep the past alive. We need to keep the past relevant. Otherwise, the way we are going personally, even as Sikhs, we're going on a, you know, we're on the one-way route to hell, the way we are continuing. No, that's not road. It's a highway. <laughs> You know, stake is to heaven. Stake, stake is to heaven, and and highway to hell. Before we wrap up, someone actually made a comment on Twitter that you know, from Baba Nanak to Guru Gobind Singh Ji, turbans meant sovereignty for everyone. You know, uh, turban on a Sikh head could be used to you know clothe naked women or you know naked people. You know, Sikhs did that. You know, they said that we are better rulers because we are selfless. Make us your rulers. Today, turbans just mean lungers and life jackets. No, it also also means uh, freebies. It also means freebies. And unfortunately, these are things we will have to fight against. Thank you for listening.
Until next time, we will be back with even more explosive and controversial content. And we'll be back to offend you. Yep, so forever hold your peace. Vahe Guruji Ka Khalsa. Vahe Guruji Ka Khalsa. Vahe Guruji Ka Khalsa.